Hello, folks. Welcome to First Thursday, the monthly podcast from the Labor Relations Information System. My name is Will Aitchison. I'll be your host for the next 45 minutes or so as we go over recent developments in the public safety, labor, and employment world. And I've got to start 2022 where I left off 2021, unfortunately, and that is with mandatory vaccination programs. I'm not going to cover the issues that I've talked about before, uh, those issues concerning the constitutionality of a mandatory vaccination program. There's no debate about that in the law anymore. Uh, there's so many decisions on that. By my count right now, uh, the, the scorecard, if you will, is 69 to zero, that there is nothing unconstitutional about a mandatory vaccination program. Instead, I want to talk about three things. Uh, the first is that we have our first interest arbitration decision on a mandatory vaccination program. And that comes to us uh, as of December 29th, uh, courtesy of the state of Illinois uh, and AFSCME Council 31, which represents corrections officers in Illinois. The second thing I want to talk about is the law that is out there on whether or not employees or a labor organization can get uh, what we broadly call injunctive relief to hold a mandatory vaccination program in abeyance while something else is going on. Something else is usually either negotiations or perhaps a grievance arbitration. Uh, and uh, there is some conflict in the law in that area. It's not a huge amount of conflict. The vast, vast majority of cases go one way. Uh, but there have been some recent decisions. A lot of you have heard about decisions from uh, the state police in Massachusetts and the Chicago FOP and, and a recent one out of St. Paul. I'll talk to you about what's going on with all of those cases. And then the third thing that I want to talk about, I am uh, actually recording this on January 5th. I want to talk about what the Supreme Court is going to be doing with respect to the federal vaccine mandates, two of the federal vaccine mandates, that is, later this week. Uh, what's that all about? What's the court going to decide and what is it not going to decide? So with that, let's start with Illinois and interest arbitration. First of all, What's interest arbitration? Just a primer for you. In the labor and employment world, there's really two types of arbitration. Uh, one type is called grievance arbitration. Grievance arbitration is where you have a dispute as to what the contract means how to, or how the contract applies to a given set of facts. So, for example, uh, it did the employer have just cause to impose a three-day suspension on someone? That's a question of what the contract means, what does just cause mean, and did the employer correctly apply the contract to a given set of facts, whatever it is the employee did that caused the discipline to be imposed. That's grievance arbitration. What does the contract mean? Interest arbitration is the form of arbitration that is the last step in the bargaining process for most public safety employees in this country who are represented by a labor, a labor organization. By my count, uh, there are 33 states that have one form or another of collective bargaining for public employees. In 32 of those states, uh, the collective bargaining is for both 
uh, law enforcement, and fire protection. In one state, uh, Idaho, only firefighters have the right to collectively bargain. Now, for those states that have collective uh, bargaining for public safety employees, most of those states, the vast majority of those states, have as the last step of the bargaining process, if you can't agree on something, you can't agree on a wage increase or uh, hours of work issue or working conditions issue, the last step is the matter goes to an arbitrator who makes a final and binding decision. That's called interest arbitration. It's not arbitration over what your contract means. It's arbitration over what should be in your contract and how your contract should be written. And as I mentioned, the vast majority of states, by my count, my count could be a little bit off here, but I think 28 out of those 32 states that have some form of negotiations for public safety employees, I think 28 of them have uh, interest arbitration as the last step in the process. Now, some pretty big states don't. Uh, California and Florida, for example, have what you could call meet and confer, which means that the last step of the process, the employer can unilaterally implement its last best uh, offer. But uh, for 28 of those states, including Illinois, the last step in the process is interest arbitration. So what's going on in Illinois to produce an interest arbitration over mandatory vaccination? Well, this is a case, as I mentioned, that involves the corrections officers, both adult corrections officers and uh, corrections officers in the juvenile justice system in uh, Illinois. And there are about 10,000 employees who are working in 46 different Department of Corrections facilities and five different Department of Juvenile Justice facilities in Illinois that are all represented by AFSCME Council 31. Uh, the state wanted a mandatory vaccination program. The governor there, Governor Pritzker is his name, he wanted a mandatory vaccination program. He believed that was a negotiable issue. Uh, and so what he did was he offered to bargain uh, with Council 31. They couldn't reach an agreement. Council 31 uh, wanted a vaccinate or test mandate, not a vaccination mandate. And so they ended up in arbitration and the, uh, the matter was to be decided, was decided on December 29th by arbitrator Edwin Benn. Now, Ed Benn is one of the more experienced arbitrators in the state of Illinois. Some think he's a bit of a controversial arbitrator, and I'll talk to you about that in just a moment. But there's no doubt that he has decided well over 100 interest arbitration cases in his career, and that's more than the vast, vast majority of arbitrators in this country. So when he's deciding this case, uh, uh, you know, should there be a mandatory vaccination program, vaccinate or you're terminated, uh, how is he going to decide it? Uh, what criteria is he going to use? Well, the legislatures in these states with interest arbitration set the criteria. And in Illinois, there's eight of them. They're very, very typical ones. Uh, the lawful authority of the employer, the stipulations of the parties. And by the way, we're including arbitrator Ben's decision with the show notes to this podcast. You'll see all the factors laid out there. 
uh, the interests and welfare of the public, a comparison of uh, wages, hours, and working conditions with other public employees performing similar services, uh, the consumer price index, uh, other factors that are customarily taken into account. Um, those are all among the eight factors that arbitrators are supposed to consider. But this is arbitrator Ed Ben, and he marches to the beat of a different drummer than many arbitrators in Illinois on whether he has to consider all eight of these factors. And that's critical in this case. Uh, and what arbitrator Ben does is he looks at the preface in the statute to the eight, the listing of the eight items. And the preface reads, the arbitration panel shall base its findings, opinions, and order on the following factors as applicable. That's eight of them. And what arbitrator Ben has held for many years and holds in this case is that phrase, as applicable, means I don't have to look at all eight of them. I don't even have to look at them in order to consider whether or not they are applicable. I can make a decision just knowing something about the nature of the dispute that these factors, whatever they are, are applicable and these other factors, whatever they are, are not applicable. And in this case, arbitrator Ben decides that not all of those factors are applicable. Why? Uh, you can tell when you read the first sentence of his opinion. Now, let me give you a, uh, it's not a secret, I think everybody knows this, when you're a litigator, when you're handling an arbitration case and you get that arbitration decision, uh, you, we used to get them in the mail, right? Now we get them by uh, email. Uh, the first thing that most of us who are representing unions or representing management do is we turn to the last page of the opinion to see whether or not we won. And we, depending on the results, we may or may not go back to the first page and read the whole opinion. Eventually we will, but if the result is we've lost, we probably want to let that blow soften a little while before we go back and read it. Well, this time, arbitrator Ben takes all the mystery out of the issue as to who's going to win when you read the first line of his opinion. And here it is, quote, because of the COVID-19 pandemic, the dispute before this arbitration panel has life and death consequences. Is there any mystery there as to how this is going to come out, that this panel is going to rule in favor of a vac vaccinate or get terminated mandate? I don't think so. I think uh, everybody reading that opinion who was involved in this case knew that. Well, how does arbitrator Ben get there? He decides there's only three factors that are relevant of those eight. And they are the authority of the employer, which he doesn't think is very important in the context of this case, the stipulations of the parties, and they're not very important in the context of this case. But the third one that he thinks is relevant is important. And it's what he bases his decision on, the interests and welfare of the public and the financial ability of the unit of government to meet those costs. Now, uh, 
he conflates those two into the interests and welfare of the public. Other arbitrators have other attitudes on this, but this is arbitrator Ben, and everybody knows what he's going to do here. So he's deciding this case comes down to what I think, I, the arbitrator, because you've given me this dispute, and that's what you do when you hire an arbitrator to decide a case. I think the interests and the welfare of the public are best served by having a vaccinate or be terminated mandate. Why? I'm going to quote about uh, four sentences or so from his opinion. You can read the whole thing. Uh, And he says, quote, Overwhelming scientific evidence offered by the state shows that vaccines are effective and safe and the best method to prevent infection. The union's position focuses much on testing, which serves to detect, and he puts detect in italics, the presence of the disease and isolating those who have the disease. The state's proposal for a vaccine mandate focuses on prevention, in italics, against getting the disease. To combat this disease, there must be a combination of detection and prevention with and in italics. The preventative step given by the vaccination must therefore be included in the arsenal of tools to overcome the ravages being caused by COVID-19. The interests and welfare of the public are better served by having the vaccine mandate for employees working in DOC and DJJ, Department of Corrections, Department of Juvenile Justice, congregate settings as part of that arsenal or tools. Now, uh, the bottom line from the arbitrator's opinion is that he sends the matter, and this is pursuant to uh, one of the stipulations that the parties reach, he sends the matters back to, matter back to the parties to reach agreement on the implementation of the appropriate procedures to be uh, used, quote, which shall include a vaccine mandate, end quote. He doesn't give them much time. He gives them until Friday of this week, until January 7th. And then he concludes his opinion must say by saying, the affected employees shall receive their first COVID-19 vaccination to be taken no later than January 31st, 2022. Uh, so this is a big decision because it's been decided by one of the most experienced arbitrators in the country. I think this decision is going to have legs. I think you're going to see other interest arbitrators citing this opinion. And bluntly, I think this is going to be the likely result in interest arbitration over whether or not you should have a vaccinate or be terminated uh, mandate or vaccinate or be placed on an unpaid leave of absence or layoff list. But whatever, if you're not vaccinated, the consequences are going to be very severe. I suspect that's going to be what happens. All right. Now let's talk about uh, the whole issue of injunctive relief. Uh, What is injunctive relief to begin with? Injunctive relief is where a court tells somebody, do something or don't do something. It's not an award of money damages. That's that's called, uh, it's a, I won't get into that, but it's a different type of relief. Injunctive relief is an order of the court that requires or forbids a party from doing something. 
And there are forms of what are called interim injunctive relief while something else is pending. The most common one you hear is a temporary restraining order, a TRO. Uh, and that's usually the first step in injunctive relief is getting a TRO. Uh, the second form is called a preliminary injunction. TROs usually only last for a short amount of time, maybe as, as they may expire as quickly as a matter of days or a matter of weeks. A preliminary injunction typically takes you all the way up to an including trial. Those are the two forms of interim injunctive relief. So when we see challenges to these vac uh, vaccination mandates, uh, we typically see the whoever is bringing the challenge, employees or labor organizations, filing for either a temporary restraining order or a, a preliminary injunction. And uh, dozens and dozens of courts, federal courts up to and including um, believe it or not, the Supreme Court have been asked to issue temporary in, uh, injunctive relief holding a vaccine mandate in place until something else happens, until a trial happens, or it may be until a completely independent proceeding like an arbitration or a unfair labor practice complaint uh, is concluded. And until, oh, I want to say about uh, six weeks ago or so, somewhere in that range, uh, all of the cases had come out the same way. And uh, so federal courts of appeal, federal trial courts, they'd all said the same thing. And that is to get injunctive relief, you need to show you, who's ever asking the court to issue this TRO or preliminary injunction, um, uh, you need to show that irreparable harm will result to somebody, uh, to usually to employees uh, or to a labor organization if the injunction isn't issued. And the common argument is, yeah, irreparable harm will result from a vaccine mandate because I'm going to get fired if I don't comply with this mandate. And courts had until, like I said, about six weeks ago, uniformly said, uh, that's not irreparable harm. Because if you're fired, somebody, a court, an arbitrator, a labor board, has the authority to order your reinstatement and to order that you be made whole for all lost wages and benefits if your termination was illegal. Because you have the possibility of relief Somewhere else, reinstatement, back pay, and all those things, the harm to you from a vaccine mandate is not irreparable. And therefore, we're not going to issue an injunction. And that, that law, that principle of law, goes back decades. It goes back to even before Title VII of the Civil Rights Act came into effect, uh, but certainly it's, it's just bedrock Title VII law uh, that if you have an employee who's claiming, for example, to be the victim of race or, or sex discrimination uh, and that they have been fired and they try to get an injunction, a court's going to say no because you can get money damages. You can get reinstatement. You don't have irreparable harm. So what happened six weeks ago? Well, six weeks ago, the Chicago FOP went into court before a state trial court judge um, and convinced the trial court judge to issue a temporary restraining order 
holding the city's vaccine mandate uh, in abeyance pending the resolution of an arbitration proceeding. And what the trial court judge ruled, he didn't get into the issue of irreparable harm uh, that people might be fired. The trial court judge said, uh, look, the irreparable harm here is that you're going to get vaccinated. You have to get vaccinated. You are being forced to get vaccinated. What the judge didn't do in that case, that many of the other judges who have decided this issue have done, is to go the next step. Because these other judges would say, you're not being forced to get vaccinated. Uh, you're just being told, if you're not vaccinated, you can't have this job. And if that's wrongful, you know, you can file a grievance or you can get reinstatement in, uh, with back pay from the court. So there's no irreparable harm. This judge in Chicago never goes that second step. He treats he treated this as a mandate. You must get vaccinated or else, period. Not or else you'll lose your job or else, period. And so the Chicago vaccine mandate has been held in abeyance. So what's going on with the underlying arbitration in Chicago? As of this morning, and I'm recording this on January 6th, uh, as, no, I'm sorry, January 5th. As of this morning, uh, the hearing in the arbitration had been concluded. Uh, they, the parties are now in a three-week briefing session, uh, and uh, the arbitrator has promised a, a quick decision uh, once the briefs go in. So you may get a decision as early as uh, the latter part of January or maybe early February. Now, here's where the personality of the, this particular arbitrator may play a role in this, because this arbitrator, this is a different arbitrator. This is a guy named George Rumel, and George Rumel is uh, one of the uh, leading arbitrators in the countries from Michigan. Uh, and when I say one of the leading arbitrators in the country, I'll bet if you asked 100 arbitrators out there who is the most prominent arbitrator in the country, uh, the largest number of them, whatever that would be, maybe even a majority, would say George Rumel. Uh, and that's who's deciding the Chicago FOP case. And the importance of that for the city and for the FOP is that arbitrator Rumel is not new to deciding a, an arbitration as to whether the city of Chicago could have a mandatory vaccination program. He decided this same issue about three weeks ago, and he decided it in favor of the city in a case involving almost all of the other unions in uh, Chicago, the firefighters union, the general employees union, and arbitrator Rumel held in that case, and we'll post that opinion in the show notes here as well, uh, arbitrator Rumel held that uh, nothing in the collective bargaining agreements that were before him prevented a vaccine mandate. So uh, the job of the city in the FOP arbitration is going to be to convince arbitrator Rumel that the FOP contract is just like those other contracts and doesn't prevent a vaccine mandate. And the job of the FOP is going to be 
that we're different, our contract language is different, or our factual situation is different such that we should not have a vaccine mandate. We'll see how that comes out. No doubt I'll be talking about that, uh, or probably if it's out by then, in the next first Thursday that we do in early February. Okay, so that's the first kind of a break in this monolith of decisions uh, holding that there's no irreparable harm, so you can't get an injunction holding a vaccine mandate in abeyance. Uh, and then there've been, there was another labor case. This one came out of Massachusetts and involved the State Police Association of Massachusetts, or as it's known colloquially there, SPAM. Uh, SPAM uh, tried to get an injunction because it had filed an unfair labor practice complaint uh, asking that the state's vaccine mandate um, be, uh, be declared to be a mandatory subject of bargaining and therefore uh, negotiable. And so when it filed that unfair labor practice complaint, it then went over into state court and tried to get an injunction holding the mandate in place while the unfair labor practice complaint was being adjudicated. And SPAM, in the last three weeks or so, has lost both of those cases. It lost the injunction case on traditional irreparable harm analysis. You know, you can get reinstatement and back pay and all that sort of stuff. And it lost the unfair labor practice complaint when uh, an examiner, so this is not the state labor board, but this is an examiner, I think they call them in Massachusetts an investigator, uh, for the state labor board said, uh, you know what, uh, the decision here is, as to whether to have a vaccine mandate, that's not negotiable, that's a management right. There are negotiable effects of the decision, but because of the COVID-19 emergency, the employer can go ahead and implement its mandate uh, as long as it continues to bargain the effects. Uh, that's now being challenged by SPAM before the full labor board, uh, but that actually is the same decision that California's labor board reached uh, many months ago, about uh, six months ago now, in a case involving the University of California. The whole notion that uh, you can... Uh, there's a difference here between the decision, which is non-negotiable, and the effects, which are negotiable. And then we had a third case. I refer to it as the St. Paul case. This is out of Minnesota, and this is a, another state trial court judge who uh, decides the irreparable harm issue the same way the Illinois state trial court judge did. And in the meantime, we've had a sprinkling of other federal court cases that go the way the majority of cases go in this country, which is to say no irreparable harm. I know I've been talking about this a long time, and I apologize for it. And uh, the reason I'm talking about it a lot is that, you know, my day job is representing public safety labor organizations. And, uh, you know, police and fire and corrections unions get asked by their members on a regular basis, why aren't you going to court trying to get an injunction? And the answer is, unless you can get a judge like uh, the one in St. Paul or the one in Chicago, you're not going to court because you're going to lose. And everybody has lost. Um, now, those opposed to vaccine mandates will say, well, you know, we still have to try to fight. And some labor organizations are doing that. 
and other labor organizations are saying, you know what, we can accomplish more through the negotiations process if we are not suing the employer that we want to negotiate with. So updates on all of this stuff uh, as we have our next first Thursday. Now, the last vaccine issue I can handle fairly quickly. All right, so what's up with the Supreme Court? Uh, the Supreme Court set a special hearing for January 7th to consider challenges to two of the federal vaccination mandates. Now, there are several vaccination mandates. There are mandates that apply to the military, for example. You've heard of those. They have been challenged so far. Uh, they, all those challenges have been unsuccessful. Uh, there are uh, mandates for uh, many federal employees, most federal employees, there's vaccination mandates. The Supreme Court's not going to consider either one of those. There's a mandate uh, for uh, private sector entities that contract with the federal government. Supreme Court's not going to consider that. Instead, the Supreme Court's going to consider uh, these two mandates. First of all, what's referred to as the large employer mandate. And uh, this is a mandate that is in place. First of all, it's not a vaccination mandate. Um, it is a vaccinate or test mandate. And this is an OSHA rule, and it only applies to large employers. Uh, and on, under this OSHA rule, if it were to go into place, uh, these employers uh, in the private sector, and probably many public sector employers as well, would have to have a vaccinate or test requirement in place. So it's not vaccinate or get fired mandate. Now, the second mandate that the Supreme Court will consider uh, is a vaccinate or be fired mandate. And this is the health care mandate. So a mandate for people who work in uh, health care institutions. Now, in neither of these cases is the Supreme Court likely to be deciding the constitutionality uh, constitutionality from an individual employee standpoint, that is, of a vaccine mandate. Now, that's, that's not what the court is interested in. What the court is interested in is whether or not Congress has granted authority through different statutory schemes to the executive branch of the government to impose a vaccine mandate or a vaccine or test mandate. This is a question of federalism. It is not a question of individual constitutional rights. So don't expect these cases to come out with some sort of holding saying, you know what, when we decided uh, Jacobson versus Massachusetts in 1905 and said that a, a vaccinate, vaccination mandate was constitutional, we were wrong. Don't expect the court to do that because it's not likely to come within a 10-foot a pole of those issues. Instead, it's going to be, did the, does the executive branch of the government, does the president have the authority uh, to issue this sort of requirement through the regulatory process? Uh, predictions? There's a six to three very conservative uh, majority on the Supreme Court right now. This is the most politically conservative Supreme Court that we have had uh, since the 1930s. Uh, 
And I, I think if you're reading the tea leaves, I think these federal mandates are either going to be declared to be beyond the authority of the executive branch or they're going to be impaired very badly in some fashion. Well, we'll have to see. Okay, on to other cases. And guess what? There are other cases, believe it or not. Uh, there's the usual background set of, of case law coming from federal and state courts and labor boards around the country involving something other than vaccination. Not as much, I will say, vaccinations taken front and center, but there, there's some. Uh, so uh, one that I want to stress, it's not really a lot of new law, but I just want to remind everybody about this. It's a cell phone case. Uh, and not just a cell phone case, it's an employer computer case. Uh, and so let's talk about it. This comes from a federal court of appeals, the 11th Circuit uh, Court of Appeals. Think uh, the southeast corner of the United States when you're thinking about the area covered by uh, the 11th Circuit. And this involves a uh, police officer by the name of Jennifer Smith, who worked for the city of Pelham, Alabama. Um, for those of you unfamiliar with it, Alabama, there is no collective bargaining for police officers in Alabama. Uh, there's not one city in the uh, state of Alabama that has a collective bargaining agreement with a police union, and there's no statewide collective bargaining law. So Officer Smith um, is a, a, just a regular police officer, patrol officer in Pelham, and the police chief became concerned that she was using too much sick time and other time off, and in particular that she had a Friday-Monday pattern. A Friday-Monday pattern means that she was using a disproportionate amount of her sick leave on uh, days that were adjacent to her days off. So he asked a detective to uh, conduct a forensic analysis of Smith's work computer uh, going all the way back to May 2015. Uh, the city has a computer email policy. I think just about every um, public safety employer in the country does. I'd be shocked to hear that one does not. And this policy uh, says, among other things, that uh, this is our computer. This is the city's computer. You don't have any privacy interests in anything on this computer. And you may not use this computer to, and I'm quoting, access, view, download, or any other method of retrieving non-city-related information, including but not limited to entertainment sites or pornographic sites. Uh, and the policy goes on to specifically prohibit downloading of files without the express consent of the department head. So that's the city policy. And then there's a police department policy that prohibits storing personal photos, music, et cetera, et cetera, on city servers and says that the servers are for police use only and not available for an employee's storage of personal documents of any kind. This is pretty standard stuff uh, that you see in a computer use policy. Can an employer have such a policy? Absolutely. It's the employer's equipment. 
In, an, in a state with collective bargaining, could employees bargain over the use of computers, over this sort of policy? Most states, I think, would say no, uh, that because the employer has the right to uh, control its equipment. Uh, and some states might say maybe you have to engage in effects bargaining, but I think most states would say no, it's not even negotiable there. Does the policy set the privacy rights of employees? Absolutely. The U.S. Supreme Court has long ago said that employees, public employees, only have a privacy right in their workplace, in lockers, in desks, in computers, in uh, electronic communication devices. Only have, employees only have a privacy right if it is somehow reasonable. And you can't have a reasonable expectation of privacy in an employer's electronic equipment if the employer has a policy saying you don't have any expectation of privacy. Uh, so the city has done what just about every, every employer I know of has done, and that is to say our equipment don't download, they probably really meant upload, uh, stuff, on uh, personal stuff, non-work-related stuff, onto our computers. So uh, what happens is the detective, and I think you probably know what's going to happen here, uh, the detective, uh, when doing this forensic review of Smith's computer, found some iPhone backups. And he looked into those backups, and he found nude images of Smith uh, and the quotation from the court is, and others. So uh, how did these backups uh, get onto the city system? And because this is from Smith's personal iPhone. And the answer is, is that the computer backs up copies of cell phones that are plugged into it. It just does it automatically. And Smith says, I didn't. I didn't even know about that. And the city says, we don't really care. You put these nude images of yourself on our computer system, on our server, you are fired. Uh, now, would an arbitrator uphold that termination? Eh, maybe not, but it's a moot point, right? Because no union, no right to appeal um, because you know we're in Alabama here. And Smith sues, saying this is a violation of my constitutional right to privacy. Uh, and uh, that's the issue that goes to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, and the court rejects Smith's appeal. And here's what the court said. Smith could not have had a subjective expectation of privacy because the city's computer use policy provided that the city had the right to monitor all users of city computing systems. In other words, her expectation was reduced because the computer use policy made it clear that the information contained on her computer could be monitoring. Uh, and does it matter uh, that this was an inadvertent backup? No, says the court. You know, it's Smith's job to understand uh, what happens when you plug a cell phone into a, a computer. And uh, she had no reasonable expectation of privacy in the backup of her cell phone. 
Now, would she have had a reasonable expectation of privacy in the cell phone itself, her personal cell phone? Well, yeah, uh, several courts have now held that, uh, that in, in public employees do have a reasonable expectation of privacy. But the problem is she lost that expectation when she plugged the computer, her, her iPhone into the computer and the backup was made. Uh, and so this, I mean, this is what we advise our clients to advise their members uh, routinely, you know, in the, in the occasional general membership meeting or in emails or text messages if the unions have an app. Uh, we say, hey, look, just have a, a solid, complete dividing line between your personal cell phones and the employer. You don't use your personal cell phones for any employer business. You don't plug your cell phones into a city computer system to charge them because you never know what's going to happen. Uh, you have your personal cell phone for your personal use only, period. End of discussion. But what, says, for example, the hypothetical Officer Smith, what am I supposed to do when I... You know, I need to check into court to see whether or not my court appearance is pending or, or whatever it might be. I've got, I've got some work-related functions I have to take care of over the phone, and I only have my personal cell phone. And I'll tell you what we tell our clients is if an employer thinks that a cell phone is an essential piece of equipment for a firefighter or a corrections officer or a police officer, then the employer should issue that. And that's something you should be bargaining about. And we commonly, for our clients now, their membership, when they're riding around, for example, in a patrol car, they don't have one cell phone. They have two. They have an employer cell phone and they have a personal cell phone. All right. So that's the story of Officer Smith. And uh, it's, I think that case, very unlikely to go any further than the 11th Circuit. And the court's opinion, I, I don't think, uh, makes any new law whatsoever. Uh, I just think this is a good reminder for everybody. While we're uh, under the broad heading of things you might be surprised by if you're from a collective bargaining state, I want to talk about a Missouri case involving deputy sheriffs who have uh, no job rights. Uh, it, may, it may surprise some people to learn that in some parts of the country, deputy sheriffs are treated as political appointees who can be hired or fired at the discretion of the sheriff. And not just hired or fired at the discretion of the sheriff, but hired or fired because they either did or did not politically support the sheriff in the sheriff's campaign to run for office. In states with collective bargaining, that would be unthinkable. And in many of the federal courts of appeals in this country, and there are 12 of them geographically. There's a 13th that's not a geographically distributed one, but there's 12 of them. All the way from the First Circuit uh, that's up in the upper northeast, Maine, Massachusetts, all the way to the 11th Circuit that I talked about with Officer Smith down in the southeast. I'm recording this from the 9th Circuit uh, in 
which uh, is the largest of them and covers uh, the West Coast. Most of the federal circuits in this country don't approve of uh, patronage. These are called political patronage cases of patronage terminations. But some of them still do, even though it seems like something out of maybe even the 19th century, uh, not, not even the 20th century. Uh, and one of them that approves of patronage terminations of deputy sheriffs uh, is the Federal Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals, which covers Missouri. So uh, what's going on in this case? Uh, this is a group of deputies who work for the Christian County Sheriff's Office in Missouri. Uh, and uh, I will give you their names because their names actually become a bit important here. Uh, this collection of employees involves John Burns, Tyler Clark, Michael Denton, Joseph Gallant, Keith Mills, Michael Wells, and Gary Clossing. And they all work for uh, the sheriff's department. Their sheriff resigns. Uh, and all six of these employees publicly support the seventh. They, uh, Keith Mills, who's one of them, uh, and all six support Mills, who's running for sheriff. And they do so in different ways. Burns and Clark posted on social media and put up yard signs. Denton told people, if they asked, uh, that he supported Mills. Uh, Gallant posted on social media, made videos, and talked to families and friends. Wells donated money, went door-to-door -door canvassing and handing out flyers, and he wore campaign t-shirts, and Clossing uh, attended a campaign event and visited polling stations. So in, in all the ways you would expect in uh, sort of a small town, uh, these uh, seven uh, deputies, uh, I said six earlier, but remember Mills is the one running for office. He makes seven. These seven deputies uh, were supporting Mills in the election. He didn't win. Somebody named Brad Cole won on August 4th. Three days later, August 7th, he assumes the duties of sheriff. Also on August 7th, he terminates Mills, his opponent, Clark, Denton, and Gallant, and demotes Burns, and then very quickly he terminates the other two. And all of them sued, all of the ones who were uh, terminated sued, and they claimed their terminations uh, violated their First Amendment uh, right to engage in political activities. And that's the case uh, that goes to the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals. And uh, the court starts off its opinion by saying, you know, generally a state or a local governmental body such as a county or a city can't condition public employment on an employee's exercise of First Amendment rights. Uh, and with a few exceptions, the Constitution, the First Amendment, prohibits a government employer from discharging or demoting employee because they support a particular candidate. However, there are a few exceptions, and one of the exceptions uh, comes to us from some Supreme Court decisions, two lines of cases that are now known because of the names of the decisions that gave us this, these lines of cases as what's called the Elrod Branty test. And under this test, a government employer can fire an employee 
if they hold confidential or policy-making positions for which political loyalty is necessary for an effective job performance. So if the employee in question is working in a job where the job is either confidential or policy-making, and political loyalty is necessary to be able to do the job well, then they can be fired for opposing whoever it is is running the shop, in this case, the sheriff. Well, the, these deputy sheriffs say, hey, we're just deputy sheriffs. We're not confidential employees. We're not policy-making employees. And political loyalty isn't necessary for us to decide who we're going to give a speeding ticket to or who we're going to arrest for domestic violence or any of the activities that are involved in the performance of our job. And the court said, deputies, you're wrong. There are five reasons why uh, under Missouri law, being a deputy sheriff requires political loyalty. One, sheriffs in Missouri are elected. Two, Deputy sheriffs assist the sheriff in the performance of his duties. Three, sheriffs are liable for their deputies' actions. Four, deputy sheriffs are at-will employees who serve at the pleasure of the sheriff. And five, deputy sheriffs engage in law enforcement activities on behalf of the sheriff. But wait a minute. You might be saying, why is... Why do any of those five things, do, why do they, why are they, is political loyalty necessary to, for example, engage in law enforcement activities on behalf of the sheriff? And uh, the court says, basically, because that's the way we've ruled for a long time. And those sorts of law enforcement activities you're talking about, giving a speeding ticket or arresting somebody, uh, political loyalty can play a factor in those sorts of decisions. And so the court ends up saying our conclusion is that Cole, the new sheriff, committed no unconstitutional act by firing these deputies because they supported his opponent in the last election. Now, as I said, uh, this is uh, the mini minority rule in the federal courts, but it is still the rule by my count in four out of the 12 circuit courts of appeals. Um, so if, if you have employees in states with collective bargaining thinking, you know, we don't have it so good here, you can point to Sheriff Cole in Missouri or Officer Smith down in Alabama and say, you know what, maybe it isn't quite as bad as you think. Well, that's it for our January 1st Thursday. Thank you for joining me. Uh, I continue to hope against hope that I can get away from the vaccination issue and get back to more pure labor and employment cases. Looks like it's going to be a little bit of a while on that. Uh, in the meantime, I hope all is well with everybody who's listening to this and that the new year is bringing you joy and calm. Uh, and with that, uh, be safe. This is Will Aitchison signing off.